We're currently in a period called Lent. The church uh, has celebrated and looked forward toward Easter, and in doing so, many people partake in a fast during this time, uh, focusing upon the cross and focusing upon really just preparing ourselves for what God is doing through us and in us and through the church. And so I hope you've been reading the devotions written by our own deacons and elders and a few by our pastor's wife, elders' wives, and they've been so good. And even though we read them last year, you know, it's, it's so refreshing to read them again. I'd forgotten a lot of the content. And so great stuff. I hope you're doing that. Another thing is Mitch asked me to highlight this book, which is for kids for Lent, the Lent season. It's kind of neat uh, little book that you start reading from this side where it, it says The Darkest Night which is leading up to the cross. And then when you get to Easter, you flip the book over and read from the other side where it says the brightest day. And so it's kind of a neat little uh, book for kids. And so I want to give one of these away, but we have plenty for sale at the book cart this morning. So um, let's just say, who, what, what kid under fifth grade, fifth grade and under, has a birthday in the month of February? Raise your hand, all right? Fifth grade and under has a birthday. Oh, we got all right, a few. All right, what's your birthday, Matthew? 16th, all right, Stephanie, what's your? 20th, all right, so come up here. If anybody was closer to that and I missed you, go by the book card and take one and you can just have it, all right? So here you go. Another thing I'd like to say, thank you to those who are part of the Fasting 15. Uh, we actually probably had about 30 people signed up for that, and it's on a rotation each week. There are different people fasting and praying together, a very similar prayer of this God just... Help us to just see you and move close to you this, this, during this time. And, and I hope that you will, um, if you guys are part of that, you'll remember your week that you're on and be part of that prayer and just petitioning and asking God just to uh, use us as a church and just allow the Holy Spirit to control us and do great things through us. So we're back in the book of Second Corinthians today. As you're flipping there, I'd just like to tell a little illustration to kind of uh, start this sermon off because it is a kind of interesting passage and it's one that I have to say, as a theologian, even as a kid, this bounced around my head a lot. I was in the 10th grade, and I was heading to soccer practice, and the soccer field from our school was literally only like 200 yards away from, um, from our school, but I jumped in the car with one of our seniors, his name was Perry McCutcheon, and as soon as I got into the car, he, turns, he starts the car, and this comes on the radio. Yes, very 80s, right? And I'm, I'm, I grew up in a very conservative home. I've told you that before. And I'm like, oh, what is this? This is rock music, you know, and like evil. And he was like, I didn't actually say that, but he, I think he saw by the look on my face, you know, I was a little taken back. It was like when uh, McFly put those, you know, earphones on his dad, you know, and he started playing music in Back to the Future. That's a, way, a little bit my reaction to it. And he's like, hey, it's Christian music. This is Christian music. I was like, really? I didn't know that you could, you know, play stuff like that and it'd be Christian music. I mean, that, during that time, that was not the thing. And so a few weeks later, I said, can I borrow that tape? And he was like, sure, borrow it and take, make a copy of it. And the song that was playing on that is called Bema Seat. And I want to just read the lyrics to that song because as a kid, when I was reading these lyrics and listening to these lyrics, I was really contemplating, what is this all about, the Bema Seat? And here's the words from the song. It says, when our labor all retire, there will be a trial by fire. Will your treasure pass the test or will it burn up with the rest? 
You may build upon a sure foundation with your building in dilapidation. When it all comes down to rubble, will it be wood, hay, or stubble, or precious stones, gold, and silver? Are you really sure? And we all will stand at the Bema seat. All will be revealed. It will be complete. There will be reward in the fiery heat when we see our lives at the Bema seat. And I think that song, even though at the time when I read it, I didn't really understand what it's talking about fully. This is what this passage of Scripture, that song is based upon today. So look at, with me for, at chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And we're going to look at these two verses today, but we're going to go back and pick up the whole context in just a minute. So verses 9 and 10. So whether we are at home or away, Paul says, we make it our aim to please God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in his body, whether good or evil. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father God, we thank you for your word that provides us truth, gives us eternal perspective. God, we know from your word how this all ends, what happens. But yet we admit, I admit, that we can get called up in the moment, in the day, in the things of this world and forget what really is valuable for all of eternity. God, give us a bigger perspective today of eternity. Give us a bigger view of what you desire for us to do each and every day, to live out your will, to make your glory and your renown known to those around us. God, I thank you for your grace and mercy. I pray that in all that we talk about today, that it will be wrapped and saturated with your grace, because we know that you are for us in Christ and not against us, and nothing can come between us. And God, we can be at peace and at rest with you no matter what's going on, when we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have been in, in Colossians, or I'm sorry, Colossians, 2 Corinthians, for quite a few weeks. We took a break, now we're back in it. And I want to just kind of recap, I know I've talked about this before, but recap where we're at, because it's important for us not to lose perspective. So Paul goes to Corinth. We know this historically, that when Paul was there, based on some evidence, that he was there around 50 and he started uh, this church. He began to just evangelize and reach out. And after he began with a few believers, he spent a year and a half there cultivating, discipling, spending time, pouring in to people's lives as Paul always did. He was always others-focused, others-centered, wanting to see them grow in their relationship with Christ. And so he poured everything into them, but then he leaves and he goes on his missionary journey elsewhere and he gets wind that he hears that things are falling apart. There's chaos, there's selfishness, people are rebelling against Paul's authority. So Paul has to go back and he has to make a painful visit. And when Paul shows up to make this painful visit, it's actually as painful for him as it was for them because they don't receive him too well. So he writes them a very, very strong letter in response to this. And that achieves some level of reconciliation with them. And so he writes 2 Corinthians, the book that we're studying, to assure them of his love and commitment to them. And Paul says that God is the God of all comfort. He starts out this book about God being the God of comfort. And God has comforted him, and he's comforted the Corinthians during this time period when there has been this tension, this adversity, and things haven't gone very well. And so why did they reject Paul in the first place? We talked a lot about the fact that they were impressed with the worldly standard of what a, an important person, a, somebody who really in their culture was a mover and shaker would, to be, and Paul was not that person. Paul was somebody who was beaten down, persecuted. 
He was a weak man physically. And so all the things that their culture said, these things are not somebody you should be following after. A leader is somebody who's prominent and strong and a great orator. And, he, and this is a person who can command a crowd. And Paul apparently was not that person. And so they bought into the culture's idea. But Paul then points them to Jesus and he points them to the affliction of Jesus and just shows them that he is following in the footsteps of Jesus. And he begins to talk in chapter 3 about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And when he talks about the New Covenant, he can't help but spend a great deal of time kind of deviating to this talk about the Old Covenant, how it was glorious, but the New Covenant is so much more glorious. And unlike Moses, who covered his face because his glory was fading because the Old Covenant wasn't permanent, the New Covenant is permanent and the law could not bring transformation. The Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ, brings transformation into our lives and conforms us into the image of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's life, he's defending his apostleship. His life is one of humility, suffering, and poverty. Very important to remember. And so he was imitating Jesus, and he desired intimacy with Jesus. And we move into chapter 5, where he talks about how that he longs for even greater intimacy with Jesus. Let's just go back and run through what we talked about last week very quickly to put this back in perspective. So Paul wrote in verse 1, he said, For we know that if this tent, that is our earthly home, and he refers to his body, his life, as a tent because it's fragile, it's weak. We know that it's not permanent. Paul understands that. He's telling the Corinthians, look, don't put too much stock into this tent. Because it won't last. He says, if it's destroyed, you have this building from God. So God is doing something. He's creating for us a new heaven and a new earth. He is, will have a glorified body for us. And he says, a house not made with hands. It's eternal in the heavens. And he says, in this tent, we're groaning. It's painful. We suffer. We have loss, as Paul has illustrated in his own life. These things happen but he's longing to put on this heavenly dwelling, this new body, this new uh, redemptive uh, body that he would receive from God that will be uh, one that will last for eternity. It's perfect. And he says, if indeed we may put it on so we're not found naked. We talked last week how that being found naked was meaning that he would die before the resurrection, before the return of Jesus, when Jesus resurrects the dead. And so in that moment, he would be a disembodied soul, one without his glorified body. So he says, for while we were in this tent, we groaned being burdened, not that we'd be unclothed, but he wants to be further clothed. He wants to put on this new body. He wants to have this redeemed body so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by this eternal life. Verse 5 he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And he says that's why we're always, always of courage, because God has assured us, putting the Holy Spirit within us, that this is true. That no matter what we go through and what we suffer on this earth, the Holy Spirit just reminds us and prompts us and tells us and makes us known through His Word, God's Word, that that this is truth, that, it, that this is a reality that we can live with and bank on because we know that God comes through and the Spirit is a guarantee that we won't lose our salvation, that God will keep us. He will help us persevere to the end. 
And as we've been reading in Jude, the, the verse in Jude at the end of the sermon, God is the one who keeps us from stumbling. And so we can be presented before God, holy and blameless. And so the Spirit is our guarantee that this was, will happen. So no matter what you're going through, no matter how tough the temptations, how discouraging the, the, the situation that you find yourself in, no matter how much failure you've had in your personal Christian walk at this moment, if you are in Christ, the Spirit is your guarantee that you can be courageous and live with great boldness in this life because God is working in you and working out through you the image of Jesus Christ to do amazing things. And so God is for you, not against you. Scripture is very clear about that. So no matter if it feels like God's against you at this moment, God is for you, not against you. And so he continues, and we know that while we're at home in this body, we're in this tent, we're away from the Lord. So he longs for deeper intimacy with Jesus, but he says, as long as I'm here on this earth, what's he say in verse 7? I'm going to walk by faith and not by sight. I'm going to walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, for we would be, rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So Paul is saying here, let me give it, let me lay it out for you like I did last week. He says, my first choice, no doubt, even so come, Lord Jesus, come. I want Jesus to come and redeem the brokenness of this world, redeem the brokenness of this groaning body. I want to experience the new heaven and the new earth, and I want to see Jesus face to face. But he says the second choice is for me to live is Christ, but to die is what? Is gain. He says, I'm ready to die and be with Jesus. Those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. He says, wake up, hello, right? It, the, somebody who follows Jesus isn't health, wealth, and prosperity. That's not the, anything new. That was way back in Corinth as well. He says that following Jesus will bring persecution, but to be away from this body is to be home with the Lord. So I'm going to be, rather be in a disembodied state until Jesus returns. And my third choice is I will happily and with much joy continue for your sake, others' sake, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the church. I'm going to continue in this tent, groaning, yes, but walking by faith. And Paul says, regardless then in verse 9, and where I'm at, look at verse 9, for whether I'm at home or away, what's his goal? My aim, my goal is to please God. So Paul says, no matter where I'm at, no matter what's going on, the goal is the same. It's about God. It's about his glory. It's about pleasing him. You know, this idea of pleasing somebody else has kind of fallen on hard times in our day and age, right? It's, it's not too big a, a, and popular of a thing to say that I'm working to please someone else, right? Even in marriage, sadly, that we rarely think that my goal is to please the other person. My goal is to just to please myself, and they better please me too. And I might give lip service to pleasing somebody else, but at the end of the day, it's about me, right? And our culture just reinforces that and tells us that. And, you know, is it wrong for me to be happy? How many times do we hear people say things like that? Is it a sin to want to be happy? And we're all about our personal pursuit of happiness, which doesn't necessarily is an evil in itself to pursue happiness. The thing is, we need to understand is, Pursuing happiness in the wrong place never leads to happiness. Pursuing happiness in Jesus Christ does lead to happiness. And it may look like Paul on this earth where you're persecu being persecuted, you're groaning, you're struggling. But in that, you know that you're pleasing Jesus, you're living for Jesus. And no matter what happens, in that you find your fulfillment, you find your joy, 
because you keep an internal perspective, not this temporary perspective that is all about your little tent that's going to be destroyed anyway, eventually, right? I love what David Paulston says. He says, pop theologians baptize the longing of the simple hearts, health and wealth, significance and security, self-esteem, power to get what you want. But the Holy Spirit is in the business of changing what you want. And the Spirit, who's our guarantee that he's put within us, is changing your desires. If you're in Christ, if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit is working in conjunction with the Word and the church, the other believers, to change your longings and change your desires. So the things of the world, the pleasures of the world, the appetites of the world begin to be more and more diminished. And the treasures that we lay up in heaven, the things that we do that result in eternal good, everlasting good, those things become bigger priorities for us. This is a progressive growth, but it's happening in each and every believer. Every believer is growing in your longings for Jesus over time. Scripture is clear about that. You may be in a dip right now. You may be in a struggle right now. But there's a trajectory of your life that Scripture says if you're in Christ, that you're moving closer and closer to the image of Jesus Christ. Obviously, we, none of us will fully arrive on this earth, but we should, as time and discipleship happens in our life, as we love the Word more, the, the more likeness of Jesus, the more desire of what God wants should be filling our hearts. And I know that's really hard for some of you, because maybe you're in a marriage where you're tracking with God, and you're even questioning, like, is my spouse, does she or he even care about the things of God? And it's hard because you're not on the same page as far as your kingdom perspective. And so you have this mixed in your, in your, even in your marriage of this worldly focus versus this kingdom focus. And so I'm not saying it's easy. It's difficult. And, and maybe if you're a younger person in here where you're can't decide, like, do I really want the things of God or not? Pastor John's saying that I should if the Holy Spirit's in me. Maybe the fact is that you don't know Jesus. And that's hard to admit because you've been raised in a church and you've given lip service to Jesus, but Jesus is really not your king. You've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so I hope you get to the point very soon where you see that all the stuff of the world doesn't matter. Because when you're young, it feels like it matters a lot, right? The accolades of the world, the desires of the world, the, the, the things that seem to just pull us into this world and loving this world, these things seem like everything when you're, what, 15, 16, 17, 18, uh, even for a while into your adulthood. They seem like it, it, you can't live without these things. And so you have to have an eternal perspective, and the only way that you can do that is to walk by faith and not by sight. We'll look at that more in just a minute. And so there's no way for an unbeliever to please God, because Romans 8 says they are in the flesh and they cannot please God. You can't please God if you're an unbeliever. You can go to church, you can try to clean up your mouth, you can clean up your act, you can try to not drink as much, you can do all these things, but if you're not in Christ, if Jesus isn't your Savior, you cannot be pleasing to God. The only way that we can be pleasing to God is to accept the sacrifice for sin that God provided in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And only then are we in the Spirit and not in the flesh. So in the flesh, 
you're going to desire the things of the world. In the Spirit, God's Spirit, who's the guarantee within us, is helping us to walk by, to live by the things of the Spirit, and we'll see the fruit of the Spirit cultivated as we live our life. We're going to be more self-controlled. We're going to be more disciplined. Right? Some people may have more discipline than other people, but discipline, self-control, is a fruit of the Spirit. We're going to be more loving toward other people. We're going to be more patient, more joyful. All these things come out of us as we are in the Spirit and we walk in the Spirit. And so Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So think of it this way. This is important to understand as we look at our text. That in Christ, there's nothing that we can do to make God love us anymore. He won't reject us. His word is crystal clear on the fact that we are fully accepted, adopted into his family. But I think to understand this passage today, it's helpful if you're a parent to think about your relationship with your children. Because I know for me, my four children, there's nothing they could do to ever make, make me say, you're not my child any longer, right? I'm, I'm totally disowning you. You're, you're out of here. You're not my kid. But there is definitely things that my kids can do to please or to not please me, right? Parents, you know that's the case. We know that kids do things, and we love them. Our love doesn't change, even though it's by, it pales in comparison to the love that God has for us. But this gives us a little taste, a little illustration, a little glimpse of what God's doing here, what he's talking about here, that we can do, our kids can do things that just aren't pleasing. They can do things that are just downright stupid, right? Any parents say that happened this weekend, right? That, that does happen from time to time, right? But doesn't change at our love for them. And so as a parent, we want our child to obey us, to please us, because we know what's best for them. And so when we walk by faith, not by sight, we live as if God, what God says is true. We're, we're trusting that his way is better. It brings joy. It brings fulfillment. It doesn't bring health, wealth, safety, prosperity, but it brings the deepest joy that we can have in this life even as we groan in this tent, right? And so we understand that God's way is better, and so that's faith. Faith is trusting God. What I, can I say, especially when it doesn't feel good? Especially when it doesn't feel right? Because we're so good at being led by our feelings, even though you know most of us guys would say it's the ladies, right, who are led by their feelings most of the time. But it's true for us guys as well, just probably just as much. We can be easily led away by our feelings, and we base decisions, you know, I'm good at quick judgments, right? That's feelings. So many times it's feelings-based. And so our feelings cannot be trusted. We walk by faith, not by sight. And how do we walk by faith? The Holy Spirit uses the Word of God in our lives to show us the truth of God to which we live by. We trust Him. And so we have a relationship with God. And so Paul wanted his actions, his motives, and his thoughts to please God because he loved Jesus but he also knew, based on verse 10, that he will be held accountable for how he lived his life, used his talents, and the gifts that God gave him. Look at verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In Paul's day, the Roman governor would sit on the judgment seat and dispense justice and try cases. And the actual ruins of Paul, where Paul was, 
in Acts 18 when he actually had to go before the judgment seat are still there today. This still exists today. And the Greek word for this, just like the song that I read earlier on, bima, the judgment seat was known as the bima seat. So it was an elevated seat where the judge would sit. But it wouldn't just be for a trial. The bima was also an elevated platform that was used during the times of the Olympics to crown those who won first, second, third place, whatever, like we see in the, in the Olympics today. And also the bima seat was used as a place where the judge would sit at the end of the finish line for a tight race when racer, runners were racing and they would come through the tape, probably not a tape back then, didn't have the digital uh, eye to see exactly who won. And so the judge would judge who won and reward the runners accordingly. So in this context, the bima is not a seat where people were condemned. It was only a place where people are rewarded. All right? It is, it is a reward, a place of reward. And we need to understand that because maybe your understanding of judgment is tainted because of some bad upbringing, some bad church experiences, whatever. But as a kid who I've told you before, grew up in very legalistic churches, I mean, I was scared to death to stand before God. I was not looking forward to it at all. And I think one of the things, and I shared this years ago, one of the things that contributed to my great fear were these little tracks. Anybody remember these little tracks, these JTC tracks? All right, they were great, and for a kid, you loved reading them. But I remember this one. It's called This Is Your Life. And my eschatology, my end times understanding was not that strong, right? I didn't understand, but I just saw this picture of, of God on his throne. And then I, I was reading, you know, eight years old, I'm reading this, and God's saying, get out of my sight, depart from me. I don't know you after this guy lives his life and he dies, and he's not a believer. And I'm thinking, man, judgment day, man, I don't want any part of that, right? I mean, that's some scary stuff right there. As, as a kid, looking at those pictures and reading this over and over again, I was petrified of this fact that, like, I don't want to be there. I don't want to, like, be before God in this situation. Well, I, I think it's important for us to understand a couple things. Either there is this great white throne of judgment, which the Scripture talks about, and the Bema seat, where these are the same events, there's differences of opinions whether this is the same event or not, or separate judgments, but there, it's drastically different the experience that one will encounter if they know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, if they're in Christ, versus someone who doesn't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So the great white throne for the unbeliever standing there and the book of life is open, this is a pass-fail kind of event for them, right? I mean, it's like, is your name in the book of life? Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? Are you in Christ? Then you pass, right? Enter into the joy of the Lord. But if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that day should be a terrifying day because we will hear the words, the person will hear the words, uh, depart from me, I never knew you. He will eternally throw you into the lake of fire, Scripture says. And so whether this is two events or the same event, the great white throne that's this, this talked about in Revelation 20, 11 through 15, is a time where the unbelievers and the believers will be separated. But more than that, though, for the believer, those whose names are found in the book of life, Paul says they'll be judged for the de their deeds in order to determine the rewards they will receive or lose. Those who name, whose names are not, again, in the book of life will be judged according to what they've done with Jesus Christ. So believers, I think it's very, very important to hear this. Believers 
will not be condemned for sin at the judgment seat of Christ. All of our sin has been paid for on the cross by Jesus. Just a few samples of verses that speak clearly by Paul, several of these, so he's not contradicting himself. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 8.12, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So whatever Paul has in mind in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you are in Christ Jesus by faith, you will never ever have to fear condemnation. You won't. You do not have to fear the standing before God. In fact, I want it to be clear that just seeing Jesus face to face, that's the great reward, right? That's the reward that Paul spoke of, and that's the reward that we long for. I want to see Jesus. I want to, to see him in his glory and to know that everything that we've done and our labors and our efforts and our discipline and our sacrifice, it's all been worth it because Jesus and who he is and what he's done. But how all of this other stuff plays out and the understanding that this is a time of reward, but as Paul speaks in this passage that obviously there's some, some responsibility for the things that we've not done, that we should have done. And so there's a lot of uncertainty around this idea of, of crowns and rewards, etc. But Jesus is our great re reward. And at the judgment seat, this will only be a reward or loss of reward. It's not condemnation. And Scripture is clear about that. So all believers will receive the great reward of seeing Jesus, but we have to understand that this some way is tied back to his words in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where he talked about building on a foundation, and what the song that I read earlier was talking about as well. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15 with me. It'll be on the screen or flip over there in your Bible. Paul writes, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work has any, that anyone has built on, the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But if anybody's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. And so Paul speaks of this idea that some way our works, some works will be shown as low quality, some will be wood, hay, stubble, while others are proven to be high quality, gold, silver, and precious stones. So Christ's teaching is compared to the fire that, I mean, I'm sorry, his testing is compared to the fire. The fire will destroy anything that is not of quality. So bring this home, bring this down to street level. So God's fire at this day of judgment, this day of the Bema seat, the, seat, the judgment seat, it's going to prove and show the things that we've done. The high-quality works, which no doubt mean those things we've done for God's glory, to build others up, those are going to be rewarded. But the low-quality works, primarily things that are done out of selfishness, out of pride, those things that we say and talk about that aren't building up the body, aren't encouraging others, those will result in loss of reward. 
And some believers, look at 15, they're like, they're going to get nothing. They're going to no reward. There's going to be no reward. And it says they're going to escape as one escaping through the fire. I mean, they're just, they just got saved. They put their faith in Jesus, but their life has not been productive for the kingdom at all. They've not used their talents for the glory of God. And so these rewards system. Again, we don't know exactly how this is going to work. I wish I could explain to you. I could give you lots of opinions on what people say about these rewards and how they're all going to work out, but the bottom line is there's a lot of opinions nobody knows for certain. Here's one thing I do know from studying the Bible and spending a lot of time in God's Word is this, that God knows how this is all going to work out, right? That God has it figured out and if there's no condemnation, that he remembers our sin no more, this cannot be a time for the believer to stand there full of shame and regret and thinking about all the things that we should have done that we didn't do. This is going to be a time where God's glory through Jesus Christ shines and is evident. And what this looks like about wood, hay, stubble, and gold, silver, and precious stone, clearly there is going to be recognized the things that we did for his kingdom. And God cares. Obedience matters to God. And having a slothful, lazy Christian attitude matters. It doesn't eliminate your ability to go to heaven and be with Jesus forever. It doesn't take away your salvation. Your salvation is secure in Christ. But in some way, it does matter to God. And this scripture makes it very clear. We must all appear so that each one. So he says that there's this uniqueness about every believer's personal encounter with Jesus at the Bema seat. It's going to be personal. I don't know what that looks like again. And I, and I think it's going to be really good, right? I think it's going to be a wonderful time because in glory, seeing Jesus face to face, he's wiping away all the tears from our eyes, the pain, the sorrow, the hurt is all gone. But at the same time, in God's economy, God being God, and there's a lot of things in Scripture that are mysteries to us that we can't fully explain, this being one of them, that this reward system, but it's not a time of condemnation. It's not a time of judgment for the believer. But the judgment will include a disclosure and evaluation of the motives of our hearts. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 talks about that. And again, I, I like the way David uh, Guzik says this. He says, we won't be punished for what was not done rightly unto the Lord. Those things will simply be burned up, and it will be as if we never did them. And so maybe that gets kind of at the idea that these things that were not done for Jesus, they're just burned up. They're showed to be worthless. All the things that we spend our time on and our energies on, our money on, the things that we thought were so valuable, we stand before Jesus, a day of joy and celebration, and these things just get burned up. They're dissolved. And the things that are highlighted, the things that are rewarded, and I don't think this is like bling that you wear around your neck. I think rewarded means these things are shown to bring glory to Jesus. These things are, are shown to be, this, this is the things that mattered throughout your life. And I don't know about you, but that motivates me. It doesn't motivate me out of fear. And as a young man reading this and even hearing the song, the words from the song, which they're, they're super biblical and they're, they're consistent with Scripture, but it was more about my perspective. That to me, God was this God who was in the sky with his baseball bat and he was just waiting for me to mess up so he could hit me on the head, right? 
He was a guy who was going to, if, if I did too many sins, if I didn't get victory over these sins, my mom was going to get cancer and die. That was the God that I believed in and worshipped. And that was a wrong perception of God. That is not the perception that you should have about the judgment seat. But at the same time, I think it's important to remember that obedience matters. And the rewards in this passage, we don't understand again completely, but we know that we can please our Father. We can please our Heavenly Father. And I think it really is the substance of the, of the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That, God, I want my life to count. I don't want to waste my, my life here. It's only one life. You've heard that. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's the concept. That's the idea. Obedience matters. And so the heart application. Live by faith and persevere. 2 John 1.8 Watch yourself so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Watch yourself. Be aware of the things that you're doing that are not building up for you treasures in heaven, but they're all about earthly perspective. It's all about what you want. It's about your agenda. It's about your selfishness. It's about you, what you get out of these relationships, not what you give. And then the hands application, 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 through 20. Paul writes, After all, what gives us hope and joy and what will be our proud reward and crown as we stand before our Lord Jesus when he returns? It is you. Yes, you are our pride and joy. You see what Paul's saying here? He's saying ministry and the things that matter in eternity are about investing in the lives of others. Investing in the discipleship and seeing people come to Jesus, seeing people grow in Jesus, seeing our kids put their faith in Jesus and follow Jesus no matter what the cost. These are the things that Paul says are what really matters. And these are going to be our reward and our crown as we stand before the Lord Jesus. And he says, you people that I'm pouring into, my life into, you're my pride and joy. And so, yes, we give money, but money is just something that's to use to further God's kingdom, his discipleship work of making disciples on this earth. And so we don't compartmentalize, I'm a giver, like I, I give money. That's, my, that's still about the kingdom. It still should be connected to I'm advancing the kingdom, the gospel in people's lives. I'm helping people see the need for Jesus and respond and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And when we serve, we do it for God's glory. When we show hospitality, it's for discipleship. Everything that we do, all our spiritual gifts that we use, are for God's glory to further his kingdom and to make him known and, to, and to, for him to be glorified. And so my encouragement to you today, head, heart, and hands again, obedience matters. Live by faith, not by sight. Ask If, if, you're, if you're wondering what that looks like, when you start an activity, Mitch and I, we come in here in the mornings and we do the, the setup and then the setup team comes in behind us. And if I'm not mindful of like, God, I'm doing this for your glory. Like this can just be a waste of a, an hour and a half of time where I just come in and do stuff. Like, why am I doing this, right? I do this every week, right? I mean, those thoughts can enter into your mind. 
We can do, Paul says, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all for God's glory. And so you take it and you turn it and you say, God, my desires are very selfish in this relationship. My desires are very selfish in giving this money. I want to be noticed and rewarded. My desires are very selfish in spending time with these people for your kingdom, right? I'm doing it for me. I like what I'm getting out of it more than what is for your glory. God, I'm just going to recognize that. I'm just going to admit to you, God, that's the truth. When you do that, look, when you admit those things to God, what it does, it takes your heart and it turns it inside out. And all of a sudden, you're living through your heart and not through tainted motives, a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, James says, a, a divided heart. You're not living that way. You're living in a way that you're exposing your own selfishness before God. And then God can take that and use that for his glory. It's about a relationship with him that acknowledges that you have to make it about him and not about yourself. And then again, our hands. People are our investment. That's what we pour our lives into, into other people. So, who, so if that's the case, if, if it's about other people and pouring into them, then how are you doing laying up your treasures in heaven? How many treasures are you laying up in heaven? Who right now are you influencing for God's kingdom intentionally? Who are you making a difference? Who are you reaching out and discipling, sharing the gospel with? Who are those people? Because if Paul says, you're my pride and joy, you're my crown, you're my reward, then that holds true for us as well. Let's make it real. Let's make it honest. God has given you more than enough. He's equipped you. He's given you his spirit inside of you. He's given you his word, his his counsel. Open it up. Share it with others. If it's children, serve for God's glory. Don't do it begrudgingly. Oh, I got to go and serve G Kids today. It's my month. It's my week of the month. Oh, it's terrible. But instead, you say, God, this is a struggle for me. It's really hard to go in and keep an attitude of discipleship. But I need you to work through me today. I'm humbling myself. You do that before you go into those rooms and serve those kids. It will change your perspective. It will help you see that you're helping in their discipleship to bring them more into the image of Jesus Christ, to bring them to their salvation. Will you do that? It's about a mindset. It's an eternal mindset, Paul says. It's not about a temporary mindset. Lay up your treasures in heaven, not on this earth. Father God, we thank you for your word that gives us incredible truth and reality. And God, we admit that we oftentimes believe the lies of Satan, that the things that seem important, um, we make too important, and they're not important at all. God, the things that are important are the things that you tell us. And we want to walk by faith in those areas, not by sight. And God, I pray you'll help us to lay up our treasures in heaven, not on this earth, We long to see you. We long to put away these tents that we're groaning and see you. But more than that, we're longing for you to return and set this world right, bringing in your new heaven and your new earth. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Even so come. In Jesus' name, amen.